a listener production. Welcome to Allergies, where Professors Katie Allen and Mimi Tang from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute break down in detail the diagnosis, management, prevention and cure of allergies, as well as the facts and myths about intolerances and treating other diseases like asthma and eczema. I think one thing that's on the lips of a lot of people is the question, is food allergy on the rise? I'm definitely one of those people. Katie, is that something we're just making up because we can diagnose easier these days or is it actually on the rise? Well, actually, I've been spending, in fact, Mimi and I have both been spending a good part of our working lives in the last 15 years trying to work out whether, one, food allergies is on the rise, and then secondly, why. In fact, whenever I give a talk or when Mimi and I wrote our book, Kids Food Allergy for Dummies, um, I put into my introduction, there probably isn't a single function uh, social event interaction I have when people don't ask me about the work that I do. And I try kind of to avoid this because it's so... It can take such a long time to explain, but I, they'll say, well, I'm working on you know, food allergy. And they'll say, is food allergy on the rise? And then I'll give this sort of long-winded answer of the academic answer of whether it is or isn't uh, for the readers. It is. You can, I'll give you the long-winded explanation in a moment. Um, and, then, um, and then they say, but why? Why is it on the rise? And before I can even finish my answer, they're telling me why they think it's on the rise. Mm -hmm. So they all know. I mean, everyone knows a kid or somebody, their own children, friends of their children. And in fact, there is now at least a couple in every classroom. So we know that food allergy is around and prevalent and it wasn't a generational two ago. So people argue about how far it's risen, you know, what's the evidence for that. It wasn't around to much extent, if at all, 50 years ago, and it is now, so you've gone from zero to hero, so it has risen. Um, the argument about how far it's risen is pretty academic, but it's somewhere between zero and 10%. It's probably around 5% um, for childhood, and it's a bit lower for adults because uh, people, one, outgrow it, but two, this epidemic of food allergy seems to have started somewhere in the 90s, and the children born in the 90s are now in their early 20s. So that epidemic edge is now coming out into young adults, and it will start to le- bleed into middle age as those children grow up, and some of them outgrow their food allergy and some do not. So that percentage might go up to 8% for children and 5% for adults? Uh, yeah, so that, that's the, as it's coming through, I think it probably is, you know, 5 five to 8% is where people put it at the moment. So it's probably going to settle somewhere there, hopefully if it doesn't continue to rise. And I have to say the reason we hope it doesn't continue to rise is that our research should start to have an impact uh, because we think we've we've stumbled on some of the reasons why for why food allergy is on the rise. Mm-hmm. We're changing recommendations and public health guidelines. We're changing clinical practice. And personally, I think the edge of it is starting to come off. We haven't got the evidence for that yet. Um, And if that's the case, we may end up plateauing the epidemic. And, you know, some people laugh at me, but I think in the next 30 years, we won't see food allergy, at least not to the extent it is now. We may even be able to completely get rid of it because if it wasn't around 30 to 50 years ago, maybe it's not going to be around 30, 50 years time if we find the reason why. And we think that there's a number of different reasons and not just one reason, but um, I've had to explain it so many times, you know, at social events, at my kids' hockey games, you know, people in the street that I've come up with this concept of what I call the five Ds Mm -hmm. because it's just a quick way to answer why we think food allergy is on the rise. And it's the summary of why we think it is at the moment. 
What are the five Ds? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> so uh, people say you should call it the three Ds because it's easier to remember. I was just going to say that and I thought, no, hold yourself back. Do yes. not say that. <laughs> so three Ds. Let's, okay, we'll change it right here, right now. So the three Ds, the first D is diet and dry skin. So there's two Ds within the first D, diet and dry skin. The second one is vitamin D and the third one is dogs and dribble. So diet and dry skin is called the dual allergen exposure hypothesis, which is a very long term for something that is much easier to understand, that kids with eczema are at risk of food allergy and infants who have particularly allergenic foods such as peanut and egg delayed are at increased risk of food allergy. And the argument is that immunologically, if you have uh, a broken down skin barrier through eczema, that your immune system uh, is exposed more easily to um, the foods. Who knows how, I suppose, just in the air. I mean, we do measure it and we know that it's around and that your immune system is alarmed. And if you eat the food through the gut, then you can calm it down. But if you delay eating the food through the gut, then you actually cause a food allergy. So that's the dual allergen exposure. Basically, if you roll around in peanut butter and don't eat it, you'll get a problem. <laughs> that's kind of a joke. But yeah. um, but if you either have good skin barrier function so you don't get eczema, potentially, or if you introduce the foods at the optimal time, which is around six months, but not before four months, you may not get the food allergy. And that is the leading hypothesis at the moment um, based on a study in the UK where introducing peanut uh, in the first year of life in the form of bomba, which is a little snack in the UK, in 600 infants who had eczema and were at high risk of food allergy, they seemed to have a dramatic reduction in their food allergy if they ate this bomba three packs a week uh, in the, from the first year of life for the first five years compared to the control group of infants who were told not to eat any peanut for the first five years of life. And that is a very strong piece of evidence that delaying introduction of certain foods increases your risk. So the argument is if you introduce certain foods in the first year of life, you will reduce your risk of food allergy. And there does seem to be some emerging evidence that improving the skin barrier function, the dry skin, may also prevent food allergy. It's not incontrovertible yet, but those two Ds, diet and dry skin, is the first hypothesis. The second one, the second D, is vitamin D. And that's where my research group has spent a lot of time, along with Mimi, looking at the role of vitamin D. Uh, and it was based on the observation, uh, not just by us, but by others, uh, both here in Australia, in the United States, and also in places like Chile, that the further from you, the equator you live, the more likely you are to have food allergy. And that's thought to be UV exposure and its impact on making vitamin D. Um, and so in Australia, we have some of the highest rates of food allergy. And that may be because um, the vitamin D hypothesis in particular might be having a role, particularly in Australia, because we have very high rates of vitamin D deficiency despite having all this sunlight because they've got this wonderful anti-cancer campaign, which we should keep, which is avoiding sun, slip, slip, slap, wrap. And more indoors, you know, mothers going back to work, um, kids sitting in front of screens, they're not getting out in the sunshine. So vitamin D levels um, are dropping in our community. And in the US and in Europe, what they do is they fortify or add vitamin D to all their dairy products to prevent rickets. And we don't do that in Australia because it's always thought we've had so much sunshine. And they also supplement their babies in the north while we don't down in the southern hemisphere. So there's a 
a reason for why we might have low, high rates of vitamin D deficiency. And if vitamin D deficiency is linked to food allergy, it may also be the reason for why we have increased rates of food allergy over and above the rest of the world. In fact, we are called the food allergy capital of the world, unfortunately. So what's interesting is the further you live away from the equator, the higher rates of allergy which kind of brings in this vitamin D UV exposure uh, story, which I think is pretty interesting. And they've, um, to, to me, that's what was one of the things that first made people think about vitamin D and UV exposure as one of Katie's Ds. And we also measured vitamin D in our Health Nut study and we found that babies who were vitamin D deficient were more likely to have food allergy. And we also found that those whose vitamin D deficiency resolved, their food allergy was more likely to resolve. We've also looked at their immune system. It seems their innate immune system isn't as healthy as it should be. We also looked at their genetics and we found that um, if they have problems with their um, genetics of their vitamin D binding protein, that also increases their risk. So we've got some indirect evidence vitamin D is important. We are now doing a study called Vitality, um, where we give baby vitamin D drops to see if we can f- prevent food allergy. And that's the study that's in progress, which we have recruited 1,000 babies. We've got another 2,000 to recruit. And it will be the only one of its kind in the world because everywhere else supplements, we don't supplement in Australia. So we're the, only, the last country in the world that can do this study properly. Um, and if it works, then it's a really fantastic impact um, because people can start doing it straight away. Um, and if it doesn't work, um, it hasn't caused any harm, um, but we'll also find out a lot of interesting stuff about babies in the way that they're being fed and the way that they're being exposed to sunlight and how they're using supplements. Um, and people say, why don't we do that ourselves now? Well, we don't have the evidence yet. We need to make sure that we use trial-grade vitamin D because often the vitamin D you buy in shops is is actually like lolly water. It's not it's over the counter. It's not a proper quality vitamin D. And we need to do it in a safe way as well. So the third hypothesis is dogs and dribble. And that's where um, the two concepts of both the hygiene hypothesis and the old friends hypothesis comes in. So we know that people who um, have dogs in the house are protected from food allergy. That's an observation in our study and it's been supported by other research as well. Dogs are just the best, aren't they? They're the best, aren't they? Maybe it's because it makes you happy. (laughs) Um, And if you have large families, um, that, that protects from food allergy as well. Um, Now, we can't recommend either of those as public health recommendations, (laughs) but um, there's something there and we need to look at that more closely. And um, it was all based on uh, David Strachan's um, initial hypothesis in 1986, I think, where he described in the UK the more siblings that someone had, the less likely they were to have hay fever. So the hygiene hypothesis was coined and it was to do with, they said, you know, you're not being as clean in a family environment for, I don't know why they call it hygiene, it's kind of the wrong word, but it was to do with overcrowding. They felt large families were protected because they were sharing germs and yeah. stuff. Anyway, so the hygiene hypothesis makes people think about hand sanitizers, but in fact, we don't know what aspect of having siblings or having dogs is important. The siblings might be shared microbiome or shared infections. The dogs actually may be shared parasites. People go, oh, I don't want to think too much about that. But dogs carry worms um, and, in fact, children carry pinworms. They often, you know, mums usually, mums and dads usually know about pinworm infestation. And um, it may well be that those parasites that are carried in the intestines of young children and in dogs may be protective because the par- the IgE system was actually you know, created by our bodies to fight parasites. So that's called the old friends hypothesis because parasites have been with us for eons. 
So there are now these emerging concepts of either microbiome, which are the bugs, or the parasites, which are carried in you know, developing countries that are protecting our community. And there are some research researchers looking at that specifically, and Mimi's been looking at the bugs, at the microbiome that we carry, but there are other researchers that are looking at worm infestation as well. So would you say, Mimi, that our gut, the, the bugs, it's a regional thing? Um, so I, I think what you're asking is the gut microbiota different in different regions of yes. the world, and the answer is yes. But just to come back on Katie's point, um, you could, if you wanted to, draw a link between all of those factors and the gut microbiome because ultimately um, the way I think of it is that the gut microbiota play an absolutely critical and central role in educating the immune system and our metabolic health and our brains to develop in a healthy way. And if you don't get that right in the first years of life, then the individual is set on a path of increased risk for diseases of the immune system, the metabolic system and of disrupted neurodevelopment. Now, the reason I say you can pull all those things uh, in and join them all up in the microbiome is that we know the diet is absolutely central to establishment and then maintenance of a healthy microbiome. And uh, similarly, exposure to the dogs um, could well interplay with the gut microbiome. And similarly, vitamin D may actually be working through modulation of the immune response um, and how the gut interacts with the immune system. But you make a good point. Um, because the diet in different regions of the world is so different and also um, in between modern society and developing countries is so different, we think that uh, it, it definitely is a reason why the gut microbiota is different. So there have been studies looking at gut microbiota of African hunter-gatherers, um, uh, South American agricultural lifestyle um, communities and then um, Italians or US urban populations and they've been able to show that all of the urban populations, modern society, irrespective of the differences in the diet between an American family and say a typical Italian family, they had very similar gut microbiota that were very distinct to those from the African hunter-gatherers and the North, oh, sorry, South American um, agricultural lifestyle um, communities. So we, we do understand that the diet and the way we live can have a very important impact on the health of the gut microbiota. The other reason we know that the um, diet is important is there have been these studies in mice showing that um, a, a low-fibre diet over generations can have a long-lasting, permanent, devastating effect on the gut microbiota. So I probably need to step back a little bit here in the first instance. Um, the way that the gut microbiota interacts with the immune system to have all these wonderful benefits in training the immune system to um, generate a tolerance environment rather than, say, allergy, autoimmune disease or inflammation. One of the ways that this happens is because um, the, the diet can allow nourishment of the gut microbiota. Certain elements such as soluble fibres, these are indigestible fibres that we eat that make their way all the way through to the colon. And in the colon, the good bacteria in our gut are able to feed off it and survive and flourish. So we can't digest 
those insoluble fibres as No, human. we can't digest them ourselves and these make their way down into the lower small intestine as well as in the large intestine and in these regions the gut microbiota get to feed off them okay, cool. which sustains these healthy bugs. Now these healthy bugs when they eat these soluble fibres they digest them themselves and they create these very important active compounds called short chain fatty acids. Suffice to say, these short-chain fatty acids have very potent immune effects that support a healthy immune system. They support tolerance responses rather than allergy responses. And so in this way, um, the diet can influence the gut microbiota. But what I was getting to earlier about the generational effects, there was a study done um, two years ago in mice, and they showed that over successive generations, if mother mice were fed on a very low-fibre diet, they showed that their offspring had a worse microbiota or a depleted microbiota. They could recover that microbiota to some degree by placing the babies onto a healthy high-fibre diet again. But if you then take those babies who have now been restored partially Mm -hmm. and give them a low-fibre diet... There's further devastation and depletion. Again, you can get some recovery, but not back to where their mothers were. So the first generation gets to, say, 75% of what the healthy was. The second generation gets to 50% after being placed back on a healthy diet. If you now put them on a a low-fibre diet again, take their offspring and keep cycling in that way, there is successive depletion. And by four generations of a poor diet, the gut microbiota is essentially... Um, decimated. There's no recovery. And you cannot recover by putting that mouse back onto a healthy diet. So at that point in time, the only way to restore the microbiota is to use a fecal microbial transplant. So actually transplant poop from a healthy mouse into that mouse because diet on its own cannot recover the microbiota. So it's quite possible that over successive generations, as our diets have shifted from the healthy um, living off the land, Mm. living off you know, uh, meat and vegetables that we grow ourselves um, as we've gone to processed foods with less fruits, vegetables, good fibres. There may be an accumulation of negative effect such that I think we probably into the third generation of that sort of a diet now ourselves. And along, you know, we I think this is one of the reasons we're seeing an increase in food allergy, but not just a food allergy. I think we're seeing an increase of all of the chronic illnesses that affect modern society, the affluent society. Obesity. Obesity, all of those other metabolic conditions linked with obesity, diabetes, type 2, cardiovascular disease and stroke. And then you've got the immune problems, that's allergy problems, autoimmune diseases, inflammatory bowel disease, some cancers. And because of the importance of the gut microbiota in the gut-brain axis, we're also seeing increased rates of neurodevelopmental conditions such as schizophrenia, dementia, depression, autism. These are all going up as well. So we've got this triad of neurodevelopmental conditions, immune-mediated conditions and metabolic conditions that are all on the rise. And I believe uh, through the work that I've read and the work that we're doing that the gut microbiota is playing a very central role in that. And feeding into there, you have diet, the exposures that we have in early life that we talked about and possibly vitamin D in the sun. So it's not food allergy being on the rise, it's our immune system being on the decline. Yes. Ha ha. That's a nice quote. Very nice. 
there's another piece of quite interesting evidence with regards to all of these factors that could all come together explaining them, which is um, the natural history of migration. So we've done a number of studies now to look at the role that migrating from a developing country to a developed country can have on the prevalence of food allergy. What we noticed, um, or I noticed clinically, is that Asians seem to be at much higher rates of food allergy in Australia. So we looked in our Health Nut study and at a 60, at 65,000 person survey for all of the children at the age five in the state of Victoria who are given a health questionnaire and it's answered by you know, more than 95% of people in the state. So it's a very good survey. And um, we've also looked in two studies of ours, Health Nuts and School Nuts. And in both of these surveys um, and in Health Nuts, we found, and School Nuts, we found that um, Asian children do have much higher rates of peanut nut allergy than Caucasian children in Australia. In Australia. Yes. In fact, two to three times more nut allergy than Australian children or Caucasian children, I should say. So what we wanted to understand is, is it, um, are they genetically at risk um, or is it the environment that is the problem? And what we looked at was Asian children who were born in Asia and then moved to Australia um, to see whether they had higher rates of um, food allergy irrespective of where they were born. And we found that children who were, who were Asian who were born in Asia and came to Australia had lower rates than even children who were Caucasian. So let me put this a simple, another way. If you say that um, uh, children in the Health Nut study who were of a Caucasian background uh, born in Australia had 10% of food, had 10% had food allergy. Children uh, who are Asian background born in Australia, 30% had food allergy. But children who were born in Asia and came to Australia had virtually zero food allergy. Wow. So it seems to be protective. So they are genetic. Asians seem to be genetically at risk, so their immune system is upregulated, presumably to fight parasites um, or whatever it is, or micro, you know, the microbiome that's de- that they've developed. And in Asia, that upregulation doesn't cause a problem. They're actually, there's some environmental factor that's protecting them from food allergy. However, if they're born in an Australian environment, their system is alarmed and is activated and creates food allergy. So if you look at the differences between Asia and Australia, you could say, well, they're closer to the equator in Asia, so they may have more vitamin D or less vitamin D deficiency. Uh, They're more exposed to um, pets and animals um, and the microbiome is different. They have more fresh fruit and vegetables. The diet's Um, definitely different. diet's definitely different. Um, We know that their dry skin isn't such a problem because uh, there's more humidity there and so there's less eczema. Uh, We also know that they're... um, uh, Well, that's it. Well, the environment. The the sanitation issues. Um, So I think... Larger families. Larger families. There's a number of environmental factors and I think what Katie's bringing up is really important for us to say because we didn't. All of the... Um, chronic illnesses of modern lifestyle, which we refer to actually as non-communicable diseases as a group, they've all gone up very quickly in the last two to three decades, much too quickly for the increase to be related to changes in our genes. It must be because of changes in the environment. That is not to say that the genes don't play a role because Katie has just highlighted a really nice example of how your genes can either increase or reduce your risk of developing allergies. But there's two factors that lead to um, all of these conditions, including food allergy. It's your genes plus the environment. And what we see with these um, with babies of an Asian heritage or ethnicity, if uh, the eth- Asian ethnicity is associated with a risk factor 
for developing food allergies. But if they grow up in early life, and it is important that it's in early life, when their immune system is being established and trained or their gut microbiota is being established, mm-hmm. if they grow up in, an, in a... Um, in their own in, in a developing environment, they seem to have the right environmental factors in play to protect them against developing food allergy. Whereas if they actually come here in the first three years of life, or in Katie's study, they were here within the first year of life, then those protective factors have been removed and their genetic risk is allowed to play out in an environment that doesn't have these protective factors in place. So that's why we talk about gene environment. You might genetically be at risk, but you can have an environment that either uncovers that genetic risk or... Um, protects you against mm. the genetic risk. So, what sort Asians, of environment though? Like what? Well, that's what we talk about: vitamin D, dirt, yeah. dry skin, um, diet. That's all environment. So, when we talk about environment, we talk about the things that are outside the body. Yep. Okay. I the can see. I can factors. see why you came up with the quick five Ds because yeah. that was a huge, uh, you know, thirty-minute explanation on she's <laughs> <laughs> being on the yep. rise. But the right. environment. I, I'd love to say something else because a lot of people think, well, you know, with the microbiota hypothesis or the hygiene hypothesis, we're not getting enough exposure to good bugs, and we're not getting enough exposure to um, the number of bugs that we're, you know, that we're seeing. So they think, well, let's just let our children roll around in the dirt. Let's use less sand, hand sanitizers. Mm. And whilst that is correct, the concern I have is that the dirt is different today than it was 100 years ago. So, you know, with progressive sanitation and changes in our food supply and everything like that, our environment is depleted of our friendly bugs. So it's getting harder and harder for us living in these modern environments to get exposure to the good bugs yeah. that we need. Is it I don't, changing I don't know or is it depleted? I don't, well, we don't know the answer. No, I mean, we don't this know is that. That's my, my so idea. In fact, yeah, in fact you know, we'd, uh, we off, I used to call it dogs and dirt for that third hypothesis, but it's dogs and dribble because there was one study that showed that mums who dropped their dummies on the ground, picked them up, put them in their own mouth and put them back in the baby was protecting against allergic disease. Not food allergy in particular, mm-hmm. but allergic disease. And the idea was that they were sharing microbiome with their mum with their babies. Now, you know, they could be sharing microbiomes because they're not washing their hands as well um, and when they change the baby's nappy. And, and in fact, we weren't given hand washing opportunities as, you know, in the native environment. So maybe we're meant to be self-inoculating. I mean, there's all yep. this concept of fecal microbial transplants, but maybe we should be self-inoculating to train the upper end of our gastrointestinal system. You probably don't want to think too hard about what I'm saying with this, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it does sound rather I disgusting. That, I think a good way to summarise it is that we don't really know in yeah. We don't know enough. We just know that something in the environment in the modern world is yes. not good. Yes. Something in the developing world is good. We don't know exactly what. We have all these hypotheses, which we've just discussed over yeah. the last 20 yeah. minutes. I, I like the microbiome one, which yeah. actually pulls together all of Katie's Ds anyway, because they all feed in to the microbiome. But it we really don't know. The evidence is still out there. So Australia does have the largest rate of anaphylaxis cases but are you worried about the way that a lot of other countries are headed? I think one thing that concerns me is that as the developing world um, becomes modernised, their economic growth accelerates, we're going to see their environment shifting to that of the modern world. And so with the increased risk of um, allergic disease amongst individuals of Asian ethnicity, certainly at least Asia is set to see a very big wave of food allergy in the future, and I suspect all of the non-communicable diseases. But 
on that point, there is another study from the US that parallels Katie's very nice data in children uh, of Asian ethnicity. They've shown that um, African-American children growing up in America also have higher rates of food allergy than Caucasian or whites, I think they prefer to say, whites and blacks. Um, and if that is correct and that the African heritage does carry with it an increased risk for developing allergy problems, then we're also set to see a similar rise in Africa as um, modernisation spreads there. And in fact, some early epidemiological studies coming out of Africa have already shown very, very high rates of sensitisation. We don't know if that converts to food allergy. The studies aren't there, but um, hopefully they will emerge in the coming years and it may well be that we see a parallel increase in food allergy as well in the African continent. Mm. So I've been involved in our studies in South Africa and in China and definitely in the urbanising cities. We're seeing rising rates of sensitisation mm. and food allergy. Um, so there is something we, we sort of, we always sort of premise all of our research discussions and hypotheses about, well, we know it's something to do with the modern lifestyle because of these observations. And as, as Mimi says, we don't know what aspect of it is important. But there's a, if you look at, if you step back and look at all the different changes that are happening in an urbanised environment, it may well be you know, infants aren't playing in the dirt as much. If you look back at the 1940s photos, all the kids had dirty knees and dirty ears and fingernails. Well, we don't expose them in that way, so it could be that. There's smaller households, there's less exposure to pets and dogs, we're not living with rural animals. There's a cleaner water supply, there's a higher use of antibiotics, not only in for us, so we're cleaning out our intestines and microbiomes with antibiotics, but also in livestock. So even the food chain the food, supply, the, food chain supply yeah. the livestock are being given low levels of antibiotics to stop them getting sick yep. in preventative yep. manners. So we're getting less microbiome in our food chain supply. The fruit and vegetables in the supermarket are more sanitised. So they've been sort of sprayed or they're put in vacuum sealed containers and so they don't spoil. So in the old days, you know, your fruit would spoil on the bench now. It can stay there for no, weeks. I know the apples don't seem to go rotten. No. It's very or strange. Or the bread. It doesn't we go can... mouldy. No. Or ours does. <laughs> we must have a dirty house. Actually, funnily <laughs> enough, you could pretty much pick anything that's different between the modern and the developing world and you could potentially say There's an increase in a lot of other things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Uh, that's quite a lot of food for thought. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so the simple answer is it's something to do with the modern lifestyle. We don't know what and um, we're hot on the tail tail of all of these things. But it's also worth mentioning that when we say we're hot on the tail, we've not just described the rise in food allergy and said this is a problem. We've started to predict what we think is important. So we've gone from description to prediction. And now we're moving to prescription. So when I say that, what we're doing is we're taking the factors we think are important and we're trialling them as prevention programs to see if we can actually prescribe a solution to the food allergy epidemic. So we have a vitamin D trial, which is looking to see whether vitamin D might prevent. And there's a whole lot of microbiome trials and Mimi's involved and we'll talk about that with our cure segment um, about um, activating microbiome solutions to preventing food allergy. There are trials that we're involved in where we're looking at skin barrier function in the first year of life. There are trials that we're involved in that are looking at allergen exposure and diet in the first year of life. So all these trials, these prevention trials, there's about six or eight of them already in progress and in the next year or two the results of those stu studies, level one evidence, will start to come to light and will start to inform public health guidelines and clinical practice guidelines that then 
we'll start to turn around the food allergy epidemic. And the first of those guidelines to change are the infant feeding guidelines, where we now recommend you no longer need to avoid things like peanut butter, cow's milk, egg and wheat beyond the first year of life, where guidelines did recommend you did before. Now we're saying introduce them in the first year of life after solids have been started. I, I think another concept that I'd love to just raise before we close on is food allergy on the rise. That's correct. We've talked, spent the whole session talking about how all of the um, non-communicable diseases are going up. But it's probably worthwhile thinking about the fact um, at the same time, infectious illnesses have gone down and that may be, you know, a sign of the shift in, in the environment becoming more sanitised. We're not getting as many infectious illnesses, but now we're suffering from these immune-mediated metabolic and neurodevelopmental conditions purely because of immune system, neurodevelopment and metabolic programming being weakened mm. by the changes in our environment. If you want to find out more, Katie and Mimi have created a free smartphone app called Allergy Pal, which has lots of life-saving features that can help keep your kids safe and make your life that little bit easier. Pick it up from your favourite app store. Allergies was presented by Professor Katie Allen and Professor Mimi Tang and was produced by me, Matt Dwyer, with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Join us in our next episode as we explain what anaphylaxis is and how we diagnose it. Listener.